On match days across the country, there are players who make you sit up and take notice. Household names strutting their stuff and dazzling with skill aplenty. Unfortunately, these players rarely seem to find themselves to either Reading or Southampton. There are, though, those who don't get the acknowledgement they deserve. The understated workhorse, the player whose importance you only truly realise when they're gone. So who are some of the greatest unsung heroes? Everyone will have an opinion. Almost certainly this podcast will divide said opinions. Here for your delectation today, it's the underrated eleven. Thank you, Arthur. Yes, Arthur and Ben here from the 11, a subjective matter, the underrated 11. So we'd love to hear your views at 11pod on Twitter. And we've gone for a 4-2-3-1 formation today, allowing the attacking midfielder to bomb on. Okay, a goalkeeper and a flatback four. Arthur, who is our reliable shot stopper in the underrated 11? So I've gone for someone who is not only underrated, but in this country I think will be slightly unheard of. He's an Italian goalkeeper called Stefano Sorrentino. Does that ring a bell? It, it doesn't ring a bell at all. No. I'm not really that surprised. He spent most of his career in the, in the lower echelons of the Serie A table. Okay. Now, obviously, Italy have a wonderful tradition of producing brilliant goalkeepers. Mm. Dino Zoff, Walter Zenga, Francesco Toldo, Gianluigi Buffon. And at the moment in the Euros, they've got Gianluigi Donnarumma, who looks fantastic as well. Mm. So Sorrentino spent a year at each of Lazio and Juventus's academies before finally getting a chance with Torino in Serie A. But they were relegated in his first season. He was sort of understudy. But then in Serie B, he very much started as their first choice goalkeeper. And he got a league best 18 clean sheets to rocket Torino right through the playoffs and towards promotion. Unfortunately, Torino had financial issues. So he left the country. He went to AK Athens for two terrific seasons, one of which included a match winning performance when they beat AC Milan in the Champions League group stage. So he was already lighting up the stage but he was fueled by hunger for Italian football and he returned to Italy with Chievo. And at a club who weren't competing towards the top end of the division, he recorded four double-digit seasons in clean sheets out of five seasons with Chievo. They very much would have been struggling against relegation without him, but he managed to keep them at comfortable mid-table position. He's also a bit of a penalty-saving specialist. He saved 14 penalties between 2001 and 19, uh, which is the joint seventh most in Serie A history. That's incredible. Um, If we need a bit of a sort of testament from a world-class player, Antonio Di Natale, the brilliant Italian striker, described him as one of the best goalkeepers of his generation. Uh, But I think he was just unfortunate in the sense that the big clubs all had established goalkeepers and Italy had an incredibly established goalkeeper in Gianluigi Buffon. And they're actually quite similar ages. I mean, he spent some time after Chievo at Palermo. He was with a really incredible team. They had Paolo Dybala. They managed to finish 11th in Serie A. But then back to Chievo. He just couldn't keep him away from Chievo. Uh, he, he went back to them at 37 years old. But it, it sort of almost seemed to be a new dawn of his career. He became known as the Eye of the Tiger. That's what his autobiography was called. Um, And he explained that by saying, 
It all started with Rocky, a movie and myth deeply rooted inside of me. Never be satisfied, always strive for something more, searching to improve through sacrifice and sweat. The eye of the tiger is all of this. And that's why he adopted that mantra. So yeah, a, a pretty astounding goalkeeper who always seems to impress whenever he's on the pitch. Uh, and I just don't really quite know why he's not better lauded. I think football fans in Italy might recognise his, his achievements, but English fans don't really know of him. That's incredible. Yeah, I must admit, it wasn't a name that, that rang a bell. And there's something about Italian goalkeepers, isn't there? I mean, Carlo Cudicini was one of the first names that sprung to mind in terms of underrated keepers, another Italian stopper whose career was somewhat stunted by the fact that Buffon and Toldo were ahead of him in the pecking order in his in his nation. And, and at Chelsea, obviously, Czech was, um, was, was the main man for Chelsea. So... I think I see him as a bit of a Brad Friedel of the of the Serie A. Is he um, bald? He he's not bald, but he just that sort of journeyman. Brad Friedel had such a long career for quite a few different clubs who also not not the finest. Just one final story as well. He hung up his gloves, if that's a if that's a phrase. <laughs> if you uh, can in, do that in January 2020, uh, and in a bit of a romantic turn of events, he signed to play as a striker under his father at Servo in the Secunda Categoria, which is the eighth tier of Italian football. He's played only one game for them. He out-jumped his marker and headed in to win the game, which is just a a very lovely story to end his career on. Sort of smacks of Julio Arca playing down in in the lower leagues of of the Northeast. Um, Love that story, Arthur. Really good pick. So you left backing, Ben? I am always, yes. And I've um, I've gone for a Bolton player, um, a, a player that I think will go down in Bolton folklore as one of the loyal servants of those Sam Allardyce days uh, when they were super successful, really. Um, and that's a Jamaican international, Ricardo Gardner. Oh, wonderful shout, Ben. Yeah, I guess you remember him. You could forget him. He, um, he probably wasn't the first name that sprung to mind when thinking of an underrated football site, but I really did feel he, he'd earned a place in this, uh, in this team once I'd done a bit of research. Uh, he was at Bolton for 14 years, which is unheard of these days. Um, somewhat of a legend. He made over 400 appearances. Uh, he also made 111 caps for Jamaica and represented them at the 1998 World Cup. Um, he was actually bought by Bolton from Harbour View, who are a Jamaican side, and he'd, he'd actually go on to manage. So an unusual story there, really, of a player being plucked from a, a little-known league to, uh, to come and play in English football. He starred in the 2001 Championship playoff final against Preston, um, scoring the most magical playoff final goal on the biggest stage at Wembley when he was really young. Um, so an incredibly impressive achievement there. Uh, interestingly, Preston were managed by David Moyes that day uh, and Allardyce was managing Bolton. So it was a, a sort of preemptive clash of two Premier League managers. Um, he was a regular throughout the Allardyce years. He played in the UEFA Cup against Bayern Munich um, and he was named the club's player of the season in 2005, 2006, uh, a season when they came eighth in the Premier League. So really, when when Bolton were at the, at the highest level they've been, Ricardo Gardner was one of their stars from that left back, left wing back position. 
he never really attracted interest from elsewhere though which is why I suppose I felt he was a relevant pick for this underrated 11 despite his success at Premier League level and on the national scene um, none of the big four ever really appeared to be interested in him no transfer rumours going around about big money moves um, and that said, he had all of the attributes that uh, a left wing back needs. He was quick. He was capable of playing further forwards. He had a direct style um, and a decent cross. So uh, I actually felt like Ricardo Gardner maybe could have managed a, a bigger club um, had he have been given the opportunity. Yeah, one thing with Ricardo Gardner that I always found a bit bizarre was I think he retired only 32, which is pretty mm. young for a Premier League football player. And I don't know whether it was injury related or or whatever, but I remember the incredibly attacking Ricardo Gardner, who was, as you say, a mainstay under Sam Allardyce. And I don't know whether his career kind of petered out a bit, but as you say, early doors in that career, I was surprised he wasn't snapped up by a, a better club than Bolton. Albeit, I think he did pretty well when when Bolton got into Europe as well. Mm, he certainly did. Um he was quite a character off the field as well. He was a Rastafarian um, and he's now part owner of a record label called Heart of Love Production, who do dance hall <laughs> and reggae style music, uh, which I, I really like to hear about. Um, <laughs> this was another slightly bizarre story that I read online about Ricardo Gardner, um, which we do like to throw in here on the 11. This is an article in Buzz which is a Caribbean lifestyle magazine. And to be honest, it's so bizarrely written. It goes something like this. You won't find too many men who can handle the bedside drama, which is involved in the birth of their child. But Ricardo Gardner not only witnessed the birth of all three of his children, but also cut their umbilical cords. <laughs> What, what a weird what a weird story that's bizarre are we, are we meant to be applauding him maybe that's I mean, another reason he's in the underrated 11 his ability to cope with cutting umbilical cords yeah i mean you've got to have a steady hand for that that sort of stuff so uh well played ricardo yeah <laughs> I, I think the only shame you, you did mention his career petered out he actually never really had a testimonial at bolton which was a bit of a shame given he'd been there for 14 years but he did play in uh, Kevin Davis's testimonial in a side alongside DJ Spoonie and Anthony Cotton from Coronation Street. So I guess if there's any way to go out with a bang, Ricardo Gardner managed it. <laughs> now, I think I'm also on centre-back, aren't I, Arthur? Because um, as we like to do on the 11, um, there is a position up for grabs, which you can vote for on Twitter at 11pod. Uh, and we've got two guest contributions later in the show which we're excited to share with you but I believe I've got the other centre back is that right? You have indeed let's hear he is. Richard Dunn. Yes he yeah. was fantastic. He was and I, I've always felt he got a bad rap because he had this ability to score own goals and get red cards which kind of overshadowed what a good player he actually was. Um, yeah. He, he holds the joint Premier League record for being sent off um, and that's eight times alongside Patrick Vieira and Duncan Ferguson uh, and he also holds the Premier League record of scoring 10 own goals so it's understandable that people look at him as a bit of a calamity um, but those fans of clubs that he played for certainly don't and see him as a bit of a hero 
He was an Irish international. He scored eight goals in 80 games for them. He was in the squad for the 2002 World Cup and also Euro 2012. He was a good tackler. He read the game well. Uh, he went, He won most of the challenges in the air that, that he came up against. So he certainly wasn't a modern defender, uh, Richard Dunn. But Man City saw the value in him and they signed him for £3.5 million in the year 2000, um, originally to play as a right back before he kind of transitioned into the, the centre-half role because of his natural physique and size. He had a number of consistent performances, which resulted in him receiving Manchester City's Player of the Year award in 2004 and 2005. Uh, he also won in the 2005, 2006, 2006, 2007, and 2007, 2008. I think you seasons. could just I think you could just say the the final year of that. <laughs> yeah, I probably could. I mean, essentially, what I'm trying to say is between 2004 and 2008, he won Player of the Year every single year. Um, which meant he was the first player to win City's Player of the Year award four times. Ben, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jut in here and say mm. that really says that he's not underrated at all. I, I disagree completely, though, Arthur, because I think this is a player that, whilst rated hugely by his own club's fan base, never got the credit he deserved in the media because of this natural. Uh, calamity that used to follow him around when it came to own goals and red cards. Red card less of a calamity though. It's more just aggression and perhaps uncontrolled. You know, we saw with the likes of of Thomas Repka, someone can be a that... bit of a wrecking ball at centre back and and can commit these fouls. But sometimes they're fouls that are needed. And I guess mm. the fact that they were red cards proved that he perhaps didn't execute them in the finest way. I remember Dunn as a quality centre back who was winning all these awards and was always putting in a shift. And yes, it's an unfortunate, what's the opposite of silver lining, but that <laughs> he was committing all these negative things on the pitch. But I do remember a lot of positivity about his play as well. I think most, yeah, like I say, most clubs fan bases would agree with you. He's just never really considered in the same breath of, as the likes of Tony Adams and Martin Keown and Nemanja mm. Vidic. When in, in reality, he was to those teams. I mean, he never won the Premier League. He was never at Man City during the period of time when they were competing at the very top of the league. Um, but as far as solid Premier League centre-backs go, he was right up there. Um, I mean, this is actually a, a fan forum where Pogue Mahone has written about him. He was a Man City fan. He said uh, he's like Vidic with pace. The ludicrous overhyping of Micah Richards could only happen with this bloke covering him. Easily the most underrated centre defender in the league. I honestly believe that he is behind Rio and Carvalho as the third best centre-half. You can keep your John Terry, your Carragher, Richard Dunn is the man. Uh, That's very that interesting. Sums up what I feel about him. I mean, to say he's Vidic with pace is that is a serious testament to the guy. Mm. It's a claim, and I don't remember Richard Dunn being particularly quick. To be fair, um, but I, I certainly see the benefit of having Richard Dunn in spoken in the same breath as those players. Really, um, okay. unfortunately. Because he was quite an old-fashioned defender, he never really fit the mould when City started spending big. So he was moved on to Villa. Um, and he now lives in Monaco, having been told to give it a try by Antoine Sibierski. <laughs> He's a great name, Antoine Sibierski. What a player. Arthur, yeah. you've gone for the right back, haven't you, in this underrated eleven? 
I have, and quite fitting with your shout of Richard Dunn in the sense that he was signed as a right back but became a centre back. This okay. is very much someone who has that versatility as well, can play across the back four and in defensive midfield, even. Okay. Um, it's Alessandro Costa Curta. Yeah, yeah. Love that name. Um, another Brilliant. Italian, another underrated Italian. Exactly. I do love the Italians today. Um, and <laughs> he. he <laughs> He, he was nicknamed Billy Costa-Curta, uh, and that's because he had quite a sort of slim physique and was noted for his ability at basketball, and the local Milan team was called the Billies uh, in oh, the 1970s. Okay. So he took on that nickname, and I think people listening might, see, might consider it a bit bizarre uh, that I'm calling him underrated, considering he had 458 caps for AC Milan, 58 for the national side, including three major tournaments. Uh, he was part of a legendary Milan team of the 90s, um, played in several World Cups and went on to become an important cog in the 2003 to 2007 Milan team that won two Champions Leagues. But I just feel like he's never quite got the credit he deserves alongside some pretty illustrious colleagues at centre-back and across the back four for Milan. The idea that Italian football is all about defending is a pretty well-worn cliche, but that AC Milan side those AC Milan sides were absolutely incredible at the back. But I felt like the names such as Paolo Maldini, Alessandro Nesta, mm. uh, Franco Baresi and, and Yap Stam, they all sort of are considered amongst the greatest defenders of all time, whereas Costa Curta slightly takes a back seat to them. He had a brilliant ability to distribute the ball well. Back in the time, it was hard to find a, a defender with good technique and first touch, but he was... He was brilliant at man marking, uh, as well as operating in a zonal marking system. I think if we need some sort of validation from a quality player, we can call on Ballon d'Or winner Fabio Cannavaro, who in mm. 2014 described Costa Curta as the best defender he'd ever played with. So a real, real player. When he was playing in the late 80s under Arrigo Sacchi, Costa Curta, along with Maldini, Baresi, Tessotti and goalkeeper Giovanni Galli, uh, he was dubbed one of Saki's five. So in Saki's training sessions, an attacking team of 10 players would be tasked with scoring a goal within 15 minutes against that five-piece defence. So you had attacking players such as Van Basten, Hullet, yeah, yeah. Rijkaard, Ancelotti, Donadoni, unbelievable players who sort of honed their ability to break down well-organised defences, whilst the defensive quintet uh, coped with being heavily outnumbered by quality, quality players. So when they actually set foot on the pitch, they found the going pretty easy, and that's probably why they won so much silverware. Costa Curta won seven Serie A titles, five European Cups. He was also the oldest player to take the field in Serie A at age 41 when he retired in 2007. Uh, so that longevity, again, shows he's known as being good, but he isn't known as being one of the greats. And I think he should be. Yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment of underrated, um, kind of in the shadow of the other Italian greats, of uh, great defenders of that time. Uh, out of interest, Costa Curta is married to a former Miss Italia beauty pageant winner. So it didn't <laughs> well all work played. out bad for him. Yeah. Plenty of space for Bolton to exploit as Middlesbrough look for a way back into this game. It's Gardner and it's another goal for Bolton Wanderers.
So underrated players are the topic of conversation today. Um, we've seen a fair few underrated managers in our time. And Arthur, you've been tasked with researching some of them for this episode. I have indeed. I've considered three potential options and I think it would be good to appoint one of them to manage this underrated side. Nice. Um, so starting off, I've chosen David O'Leary as the first oh, of these yeah. managers. I I've actually met him. Um, have you? Weird story. I, I met him in a hotel and I wanted to get his autograph. And the only thing that my mum had in her handbag was this checkbook. So I went over and got him to sign a check. And he was like, am I being scammed here? This is really weird. This like eight year old boys come up to me with a checkbook. But, um, but, he, he, did but he did sign it. it. He did. Sign That's it, very yeah. good. Yeah, he's a manager who I just don't think gets the credit he deserves for the job that he did at Leeds United. Between 1998 and 2002, he had four top five finishes in the league and he took Leeds all the way to the Champions League semi-finals. And then his next job was at Villa, who finished sixth in his maiden season at the helm. Uh, but then things got a little bit worse. He dropped to 10th in 2005 and 16th in 2006. But I think his previous work shouldn't be forgotten. He finished that spell at Villa and then four years later had a, had a seven-game spell at Al-Ali. And that was it. Yeah, that is strange. Perhaps it was a family decision, but certainly David O'Leary's achievements at Leeds don't get wide coverage. He was a great player back in the day as well. He was actually the record holder for Arsenal appearances of all time. So second uh, for consideration is someone that you may well not have heard of, Mercia Luchescu. Oh, great name. I mean, I've been to Mercia, but I don't yeah. know him. He's a manager whose achievements you could equate to Sir Alex Ferguson. Having won the Turkish Super League with Galatasaray in 2002, that was his first job. He was replaced by Fatih Tarim, who is a quality mm. manager himself. He didn't bat an eyelid. He just went and won the Super League the next season with Besiktas. Uh, and then he had 12 years in charge of Shakhtar. Uh, he led them to eight domestic league titles and six domestic cup titles. Uh, they got their first European trophy in the form of the 2009 UEFA Cup. He then had a less successful spell with Zenit St. Petersburg and as manager of the Turkey international side. He couldn't cope with retirement. Um, he's 70 years old now. And he cropped up at Dinamo Kiev, who are mm. Shakhtar's fiercest rivals. Shakhtar were on the back of four straight league titles. And he just went and won the treble last season with Dinamo Kiev. Wow. He must have brought through some pretty decent players in his time as well. I mean, exactly. particularly that Shakhtar era with all the Brazilians that were coming through. I just don't know why he's not talked about in more esteemed company. Yeah, it's interesting. I think he's a, a good name to throw into the hat. Have we got one more? We do. It's Alan Kerbishley. Oh, yeah. Alan. Hmm. <laughs> he's been out of management since 2008, but only in the last couple of seasons has his name stopped being slightly jokingly linked with any Premier League vacancy. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. It is yeah. literally a constant, isn't it? That he gets, it is. Gets and he only ever coached two clubs in his 17-year career. Mm. a decade and a half of which was spent at Charlton. He won promotion with them in 1998, but he couldn't keep them in the top flight the next season. Then he finished first in the second tier, mm. uh, and they went on to be established as a, as a solid mid-table Premier League side of the next six seasons. 
He then had a spell at West Ham, who he achieved safety with in 2007, and then a top path finished the next campaign before he resigned after accusing the board of selling two players without his approval. Both of those seem reasonably solid jobs. And I just don't understand why, again, his career didn't continue. I think he showed a lot of promise at Charlton. They weren't a brilliant side, but he established them in the Premier League. And he was only 51 when he left West Ham. Yeah, I mean, I can only think he's been offered jobs during that time, but for whatever reason, hasn't taken them up. His achievements at Charlton, I think, was the most impressive part of his career. Absolutely. So I'm intent on appointing Luchesco as manager of this team. <laughs> OK, I was going to go O'Leary. I just okay. I feel he's gone under the radar, whereas Luchescu, I would say he's, he's only underrated because no one's heard of him. I think, I think he is very rated, clearly, in Ukraine. Yeah. OK, I'm happy to go with O'Leary. David O'Leary, he, well, he signed my checkbook, so I'm sure he's happy to manage this underrated 11. Well, you're still talking it down, but you are top. Well done tonight, David. Thanks, I'm delighted to be top. Thank you. Centre midfield, Ben, who are you going for? Well, when I think underrated, I think John Moncur. <laughs> He was a uh, he was a five foot seven nippy little central midfield player, um, classy but combative at the same time, um, a bit of a Dennis Wise type, um, and he was often in the referee's notebook, which earned him a bit of a reputation as a bad boy. He spent nine years at West Ham, but he was mostly utilised from the bench, making one hundred and seventy six appearances. Um, but it was his tenacity, really, that endeared him to the West Ham faithful. Um, an indication of his popularity came in a fiery London derby against his former club Tottenham Hotspur on the 24th of April 1999, uh, when he was sent off for two bookable offences, the latter a bad foul, and clenched his fists in defiance at the travelling West Ham supporters um, to almost celebrate getting one over the rivals. Um, and West Ham did actually eventually go on to win the match 2-1, um, so it all was forgiven. He was capable of flashes of brilliance. I don't know whether you remember much of Moncur, um, Arthur, but he, he certainly scored his fair few impressive goals, um, one of which was in a 5-4 win over Bradford, a rising drive from the outside of the penalty area. Um, and he ran over to the West Ham fans, as he often did after scoring, and took his shirt off in celebration. Um, when the celebrations died down, though, Moncur on this occasion was unable to put his shirt back on and was seen running up the pitch with his shirt still partially on. Um, and he was still out of position when they kicked off again and Bradford went up the other end and scored. Oh, so, no. Um, yeah. It's like Balotelli with the bib. Exactly. Um, certainly a character, John Moncur, but I think he was kind of let off for being a bit of a joker. And it wasn't just on the field that he was a practical joker. Apparently off it, too. Frank Sinclair said uh, on a trip to Croatia in the summer, um, a few of the, the players went out there, including Igor Stimak and Davo Suker's mates. Um, apparently it was a bit of a wasteland. It was war-torn five years before that, and the hotel was in an area that you could see had been bombed previously. Frank Sinclair says, so we've gone to this wasteland, brought out these guns, and we're shooting these guns. It's an amazing feeling, the power of them. So we're all stood behind him, having a little go. And then someone else would have a go. And then John Moncur, while we're firing, is just getting undressed behind us. The next minute, from nowhere, he's run into a shrub low bushes bits and bobs 
then there's commotion and the Croatian boys are like, no, no, no. It hadn't been swept for bombs. Suddenly John Moncur had run into a bomb field and he tiptoed back, the colour draining from his face. He was in the middle of an area that hadn't been cleared for mines. So um, he was he was a bit of a character, a bit of a naughty boy. But I, I think that perhaps overshadowed the fact that there was a decent footballer in there. Are we talking about a player who could have been uh, considered for England? I think he could have been had he have had a consistent run in the team. But I think because he was a little bit of a liability, he, he was often used from the bench. Mm. I think the useful option of a combative midfielder is, is something that every team really needs. The kind of Scott Brown of the uh, <laughs> of West Ham. Very interesting shout and not a player I know a lot about. So I like that. And to go alongside him in centre midfield, I picked Stephen McPhail. Oh, OK. Wow, this is a team and a half, isn't it? It is. I, I think in centre midfield, perhaps you, you found the same thing. Lots of players across the years, such as Moussa Dembele, Park Ji-sung, mm-hmm. uh, Fernandinho, Scholes, Makalele. I think all of these are players who do quite a quiet job on the pitch and are now so frequently mentioned as underrated that they are bordering on overrated. Yeah, I agree. I think there was something that happened in the media about 10 years ago when suddenly defensive midfielders became cool. And all of a sudden it's like a boom and these players are getting heroes. Yeah, I think it could be that the rise of stats in football when you're mm. starting to realise what a job these guys are doing. So Stephen McPhail is a midfielder actually whose championship form with Cardiff between 2006 and 13 caught my eye really. But really he burst onto the scene at a much higher level with Leeds United in the late 90s. He became a regular in the 1999-2000 season and was involved in the club's Champions League run in 2001. And he appeared in memorable games against the likes of Barcelona and Lazio, uh, with Leeds reaching the semi-finals, obviously under David O'Leary. But after David O'Leary left, Leeds went on to have several different managers over the next few years. And during this time, McPhail was pretty hampered by injury. Uh, So it meant that he found it difficult to break into the team under Terry Venables or Peter Reid. So at Cardiff, he proved his fitness and became a standout midfielder for them. He had a fantastic range of passing. He was an absolutely brilliant talent, and he very much looked like the next standout Irish midfielder at the turn of the millennium. Injuries plagued his career uh, and limited him to just 10 appearances for his country. And I think... On a lot of Irish forum, forums, I was trawling in, uh, in, <laughs> in research for the eleven. They very much consider him potentially as the most underrated midfielder of all time for them. I've got a lovely quote here from Olivier Dacor. Uh, he says, no one says too much about him, but the best player I saw, Stephen McPhail, his left foot, it was so good. You ask me who I want to play with most, it's him. So he had that effect on his on his teammates. They rated him, they saw the talent, but actually really it was injuries that hampered him uh, and just meant that he couldn't quite reach that top level. McPhail and Moncur feels like a natural partnership in this underrated 11. I, I love where we're going with this, Arthur. Good work. We need an attacking midfielder, though, that is going to sit just in front of those two uh, and pot- potentially isn't the most creative but is prepared to to bridge that gap between the midfield and the attack. Uh, And someone who did that elegantly throughout the early noughties was Yusuf Chippo. 
<laughs> I love the name Yusuf Chippo. It's fantastic. It's such a good name. He's such a good name. He was the kind of slightly behind the scenes Mustafa Hadji, wasn't he? Absolutely. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. I, I think often these underrated players are in someone else's shadow. Uh, and you talked about Costa Curta in that light. And that was certainly the case with Yusuf Chippo. Um, he joined Coventry City in 1999, following a, a pretty successful 98 World Cup, where he did actually score an own goal, um, unfortunately, in the, in the match against Norway, but was one of the best players on the pitch and was heralded for his performances. That is why... Richard Dunn is not underrated. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to let me live that down. Um, but yeah, Chippo was was very much in Hadji's shadow. Uh, when he joined Coventry, there was already this Moroccan wizard at the club, um, Mustafa Hadji, um, and they actually formed a glorious partnership together. They were good friends, ferocious talents, uh, and a joy to watch. They guided Coventry to 14th in the Premier League, both scoring six goals in the 1999-2000 season. And Hadji was the marvel. He was the one that was remembered. He was the one that had that bit of magic and got fans off their, off their seats. But really, I'm not sure he could have played such an effective role in that Coventry side without a solid attacking central midfielder um, alongside him. And that was Chippo. Uh, he was consistent. He did the groundwork. He was capable of scoring superb goals himself, one against Leeds in 1999, where Hadji himself played him through. Uh, and it was a first top touch volley um, with Chippo's right foot that looped over the goalkeeper. Um, so he had the class, but really he was known for being that consistent runner, um, the metronome really in the centre of the park. And he was also loyal, whereas Hadji left when Coventry were relegated the following season. Um, Chipo actually remained at the club for another couple of years in the second tier before eventually moving on to play in Qatar. So I felt he was a worthy pick, someone who deserved a mention of his own right in the underrated eleven. Absolutely. He was a player I remember fondly from the only game I ever had on PlayStation 1, which was This Is Football. Oh, what a star. That was a great yeah, that, game. Deliberate that, dives and deliberate fouls. Absolutely, all of the options above. He was a quality midfielder, and I'm glad you brought him up because he does often get forgotten alongside his more illustrious colleagues. Yusuf Chipper, I think, is a very useful addition to this team, um, operating behind the striker. Right. So, Arthur, who is going to play on the left side of our midfield? So I've decided to go for a Premier League legend. Oh, right. Steed Malbronk. Oh, good pick. Like that. I was worried for a minute you were going to go too highbrow, but Steed Malbronk, <laughs> that's a one for the people. We love him. He made his name at Fulham as a record signing. Uh, he arrived as a highly rated under-21 international for France. And he cost £4.5 million. Um, by all accounts, I think a very, very good deal in hindsight. By 2001, he'd already made 50 appearances from Lyon. So they were signing a pretty established player. Ben, you've mentioned on this podcast before that Tony Blair was pretty fond of Arjan Dezu. <laughs> yeah, bizarrely. Well, you know what? In that 2005 interview, alongside Arjen Dezu, he named Steed Malbronk as one of his three <laughs> favourite Premier League players. I love the fact that Tony Blair just picks out obscure names. I think he'd Bizarre. be a big fan of this show. Absolutely, I agree. The, the third of those players, by the way, was Teddy Sheringham oh, uh, in, okay. in that Football Focus interview. 
so Steed thrived at Fulham. He scored 32 goals in 172 games, quality presence down the, the left wing. And sadly, during that period of time, which was really at his pomp for Fulham, the French squad just had so much quality. His career coincided with Frank Ribéry, who was a, an absolutely quality player. So he didn't actually get any French national appearances. And that's part of the reason I feel he was, he was very underrated. He had two call-ups, but no appearances, sadly. And basically, he ran out of his contract and signed for Spurs. And upon signing for Spurs, their manager, Martin Yole, said that um, Steed is a skillful, versatile midfielder of real quality. And I couldn't help but agree entirely with Martin Yole. His end product was somewhat lacking by the time he reached Spurs and subsequently Sunderland. But he was just full of hard work and mm. tackling ability, um, and that made him a firm fan favourite of both of those sides. Of course, he was one of the last Tottenham players to win a trophy. <laughs> he played yeah. his part in their in their Carling Cup triumph in 2008. A 10-year Premier League career, uh, 336 games, 39 goals, 55 assists. I think he deserves to be considered better than he is. I, I would completely agree. I mean, he was he was five foot six. He had a low centre of gravity and he was just one of those players that you want to watch, which which I think always always gets forgotten when people are judging how good players were. Uh, fundamentally, it's about entertainment and Steve Malbronk was entertaining. I was just looking at his statistics here and something I'd forgotten about completely. Uh, once he'd had that spell at Sunderland and, and left the Premier League at the age of 32, he actually enjoyed four more successful years back at Lyon. Um, mm. where he made 93 appearances in the French top flight. So um, he was a player that played well into the twilight of his career um, at a pretty high level. I like that shout a lot. I'm going with uh, a German on the right side of the midfield, um, perhaps one of the best crossers of the ball in football history, um, but someone that regularly, for me, goes under the radar, and that's Bernd Schneider. Okay. Yeah. What a great player. Interesting. He, he was a superb player, Bernd Schneider. Uh, he earned the nickname the White Brazilian for his dribbling and passing skills, as well as his accurate free kicks and corners. Um, to, and to be honest, obviously the German model of football, you get a lot of hardworking, tough tackling, efficient players. Uh, and he stood out from the crowd really as being um, a bit more of a flair player during the noughties. Um he, he played almost all of his top flight career at Bayer Leverkusen. And I wonder if this is why he hasn't really become a topic of conversation here in the UK, because um, he played 263 games for them, including 81 appearances for Germany during that time. He was in the squad for the World Cup in 2002, Euro 2004 and the World Cup in 2006. Um, and at that World Cup on home soil, he played alongside Balak, Torsten Frings and Bastian Schweinsteiger in the most formidable midfield of the tournament. They all played their part in the team's unexpected success. And he was a World Cup runner up and a third place finisher during that time on the international scene. This is perhaps one of the reasons why Bernd Schneider isn't quite considered in the same light as, as Michael Balak, that he, he never actually really won anything. Um, he was a runner-up in the Bundesliga in 1999-2000 and then 2001-2002. 11 decisive passes in that, in that season, as well as five goals. 
um, and he appeared 19 times as that Bayer Leverkusen side reached the final of the Champions League and once again were runners-up. He, he's a bit of a serial runner-up, Bernd Schneider, and that's perhaps why he goes under the radar. I think that's a fair shout. When you initially mentioned Bernd Schneider, mm. I was thinking 80 caps for Germany. How can this guy be under the yeah. radar? But I think it's a similar sense to Costa Curta. He sort of slips behind his slightly more illustrious colleagues. And, and it surprises me that he didn't get a move like almost every good Bundesliga player to Bayern Munich to win mm. stuff. And I think that is what probably hold, held him back. Yeah, I think that was interest from, from Bayern naturally, but he felt quite loyal to Leverkusen. A player that was rated on the continent, perhaps higher than he was rated here, Juan, who was his Leverkusen teammate, said that Schnicks, which was his nickname, um, is the only German player who could immediately line up for the Selecção and the Brazil national team. So he heavily rated in Germany, but never really translated into a big fan base over here in the UK. Ben, I think salt in the wound as well is that he retired in 2009 after that season and Bayer Leverkusen won the Bundesliga in 10-11. So only two years <laughs> oh, after he left. Oh no, <laughs> painful for Bernd. Very sad. It's actually quite hard, I imagine, to pick out an underrated striker because they normally make the headlines if they're decent enough. But Arthur, who have you gone for? They do. This is a player who has made the headlines on the occasion and actually still plays today. It's Olivier Giroud. Yeah, yeah. I can see already why you've picked him. This is a player who's derided for missing chances at Arsenal. He's mm. ridiculed for not scoring in the World Cup win for France. And he's kept out of the team by other strikers at Chelsea. But I just think there's no doubting his quality. He's from Chambéry, which is the small French city that I spent a year in uh, living in France, which is which is a nice little niche fact. Lovely. Uh, he started uh, in the in the French lower leagues with Grenoble and then Tours before heading to Montpellier, where he really started to make a name for himself. He smashed 21 league goals and got nine assists in his second season with them, firing them to their first and only Ligue 1 title. Uh, and he earned a £10 million move to Arsenal. Giroud's a pretty traditional centre-forward. He is a bit of a target man. He occupies defenders, provides an out ball. He holds the ball up for fellow attackers. And I think that might be part of the reason why he is underrated, in my opinion. It's because he is unselfish and he brings others into play. He certainly didn't disappoint at Arsenal in terms of stats. 105 goals in 253 games there. I think is a pretty decent haul for him. That included the spectacular scorpion kick against Crystal Palace in 2017, which was voted winner of that year's Pushkas Award. Just a beautiful goal. And he won three FA Cups to help end Arsenal's nine-year trophy drought. I think, of course, the lack of league title win will, will pain him, I'm sure, but he had a pretty good stint there. And now he's at Chelsea. Uh, in 2019, he was instrumental when Chelsea claimed their second ever Europa League title. He scored 11 goals in 14 games and won the competition's golden boot. I think that just shows when he's given the chance, he does deliver. I think teams favour maybe a slightly more cultured striker wow. um, and, a, and a more exciting striker to watch, perhaps. You know, we saw in France's 2018 World Cup triumph for which he is a bit lambasted having not scored in in seven games despite being their lone striker but 
In those kinds of games, he adopts a, a deeper role. He allows Kylian Mbappe to flourish. He's now got 46 goals in just 108 appearances for France, which puts him second on the all-time top scorers list for France. He's ahead of Michel Platini. He's only behind Thierry Henry now, and he looks probably set to break that record if he's given enough playing time. I know a YouTube highlights reel is is often very inaccurate, but if you took his highlights reel and showed it to someone in a hundred years time and told him he's one of the greatest to have ever played, I think they probably would believe you. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, because he's scored some unbelievable goals. And um, I know he's much loved by the fans at both Arsenal and Chelsea for his time there. I disagree with that, Ben. I don't think he's that loved by Arsenal fans. I think they see him as a bit of a kind of wastrel. <laughs> really? Because he just never lived up to that hype. First couple of seasons at Arsenal, he was he was reasonably good and he did score some goals. But when, you know, Alexis Sanchez came in, I think mm. the burden was taken off Giroud and he was thrust a bit to the back. And I think they saw him as a striker who missed chances. And I don't think they remember him for what he deserves to be remembered for. Bronk in a good position, good strike, oh, it's a super goal! Steve Malbronk for Sunderland! Right, it's time for Up for Grabs. This week's position is centre-back, and first up we have a nomination from Laura Lawrence. Uh, she's a football writer and huge Sheffield Wednesday fan. She writes weekly opinion column for the Offside Rule podcast. Let's hear who she's gone for today. My choice of centre-back may be controversial as an underrated player but he rarely makes the list of Premier League great. My choice is Ledley King. I've chosen Ledley because he was immaculate, better than John Terry, better than Saul Campbell. At the beginning of his career, he had pace without seeming to move quickly. He was just always there. He could hold up the ball, distribute it with precision, and he was clever in his use of space. Never crowding, but just with the ability to take the ball from you. There's a particular Bobby Morris tackle that he did on Chelsea's Iron Robin, where he was a good eight yards behind Robin, but effortlessly strode alongside him to swipe the ball away in the penalty box. It's chef's kiss good. Thierry Henry said of Ledley, he's the only guy who doesn't hold players. He will get the ball off you without you even knowing. That's the sign of a good defender. So if he's so rated by his peers, why am I putting him in the underrated category? because he had knees made of the finest porcelain. On his debut for Spurs, he was injured less than a minute in by Rory Delap, and he never fully recovered. Ledley only played 312 club games in 14 years for Spurs. When he could play, he couldn't train, which meant he risked everything on the pitch. Even then, he knew his athleticism wasn't going to help him, but his positional play would. Had Ledley been fit, he would have been hailed as one of the greatest English defenders this country has ever produced. He doesn't make the list of all-time greats because of his injury absences. But we should look at how he played and keep thinking, what if? Yeah, I think Ledley King's a really good shout from Laura, mm. often overlooked because of that, that injury record. Yeah, thank you, Laura. I um, really like that. I, again, I, I would say him and Richard Dunn would probably forge the most underrated Premier League partnership of all time, and, and that makes it a pretty legit suggestion. I like that. A second contribution has come in from Ash Rose. Ash, thanks so much for getting in touch. He is the presenter of a live and kicking pod. Let's see who he has gone for. 
Hi, Ash Rose here from Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast, the original one. And there were a few options for me. I could have gone down the QPR route and chosen Danny Maddox or someone like that. I even looked at Henning Berg or maybe Chris Fairclough. But the guy I'm choosing is Paul Warhurst. Now, he has an interesting quirk to his underratedness from this era. Firstly, he was a great centre-back for Oldham. He was part of that uh, team that reached the semi-finals of the FA Cup in 1990. Went to Wednesday, part of that big wrong era where they won the Lumbelows Cup. But also, he played up front and once went 12 goals in 12 games for Wednesday. Great centre-back, ability to play all over the pitch, which you don't get as much anymore. He is my underrated centre-back of the 1990s, former Oldham and Sheffield Wednesday player, Paul Warhurst. Love it. Okay, Paul Warhurst. Slightly before my time, I must admit, but I was interested to read that in 1993, uh, he played in the League Cup final as a striker, and then in the FA Cup final as a centre-back in the same year. Wow. Um, so I feel like if you're that much of a utility man, you must be underrated in some way. Thanks, Ash. Um, do check out his podcast. It's fantastic. Arthur, you've uh, got another suggestion, haven't you? I have. I've decided to go for Miodrag Belododic. Who? <laughs> he is... An absolute wizard. I just do not understand why we haven't heard of him. It's the same sort of thing as uh, Luchescu. And actually, this is another Romanian. Okay. He has... Uh, I, I just think over time, there are lots of unbelievable players who've been forgotten. There was Nandor Hidaguti, who was a key component of that mighty Magyar team uh, that dominated the 50s alongside Pushkas. So I wanted to pick someone... A little bit more recent than Nandor. So I settled on a, upon a player who retired in 2001, albeit he played his best football in the late 80s and early 90s. He won eight straight league titles and four consecutive league and cup doubles across spells with Stal Bucharest and Red Star Belgrade. Mm. Um, he also guided Romania to the quarterfinals of the 1994 World Cup and Euro 2000. The latter, interestingly, he was partnered with Christian Kivu, who was a pick of yours for the Euros 11. He was um, indeed. Christian was 16 years his junior. <laughs> so a very interesting 36 and 20-year-old centre-back partnership. Um, wow. He was one of the game's finest liberos and the first player who actually played in the final to win the European Cup with two different clubs. Uh, he won it in 1986 with Stal Bucharest and 1991 with Red Star Belgrade. Uh, he was nominated for the Ballon d'Or in 1991 and just an absolutely brilliant player. Um, a little bit of a history lesson for you here. <laughs> After the 1986 European Cup win with Bucharest, he resolved to flee the country because he didn't like the regime in place. That was easier said than done as the team confiscated the players' passports after each game. So after significant planning, he managed to cross the border into Yugoslavia. Unfortunately, every player in the Stau team was in the military, so that made him a deserter and earned him a 10-year jail sentence, which was rescinded after the revolution in 1989. But then after leaving Stau Bucharest, he needed a new club, and so he attended a Red Star game and then went into the office of the club's sporting director, and he recalls, I knocked on the door and asked if they wanted a player. I explained who I was and where I'd come from, I had to explain six times. He looked at me, he couldn't understand. But then suddenly he realised who I was. This is essentially the equivalent of one of the best players in the world turning up 
and asking any chance of a game, mate. <laughs> and there was also a recollection of his. He was asked uh, in that same interview, actually, if the Stow team of 1986 played against the Red Star team of 1991, who would win? And he answered simply, which team am I playing on? <laughs> oh, I love that answer. <laughs> he sounds like a bit of a legend, Bella Dadich. And he, um, he is. Is this an attempt to grow our Romanian fan base, Arthur? I think potentially. I just think it's one of those ones where I think it was probably due to the various political conflicts of these countries that means he slightly goes under the radar because he's not that well known at all over here. He was nicknamed the Deer due to his elegant tackles, which I also <laughs> quite enjoyed. <laughs> that is fun. I love Who have you it. gone for, Ben? Um, I've picked a, a player that I believe to be world-class, one of the best central defenders of the p- previous decades, but perhaps doesn't always get credited with that. Uh, and that's Roberto Ayala. Yes, very good um, pick. So he played for Valencia, Zaragoza and Napoli, amongst others. Um, he played an integral part in the Argentine squad for the 2006 World Cup in Germany. Uh, and he was picked out as a member of the All-Star team in that tournament. He helped Valencia to two La Liga titles as well as a UEFA Cup triumph. So he was well decorated in that sense. And he made Rio Ferdinand's best ever Champions League eleven. Um, he said he played against him when he was at Leeds um, and just said he was a typical Argentinian player. Strong, resolute, aggressive, quick, all the attributes you need to be a top defender. But I guess the reason why I felt he qualified for being underrated was he was only actually nominated for one Ballon d'Or throughout his entire career, um, despite consistently being successful. That was in 2004, and he didn't receive a single vote from any players in that Ballon d'Or. So that was the 2004 after he just won the La Liga title with Valencia. Um, To give you an idea, in 2004, following the Euros, Theodoros Zagarakis got 20 votes. So for Roberto Ayala, albeit not having just won um, the Euros, uh, to not get a single vote in that time is is absolutely astonishing because he really was um, one of the best defenders of his generation. And potentially similar to Schneider, it was the not playing for one of the best teams in the world. I mean, Valencia a strong team in Spain, but he wasn't playing for the best team in Spain. Um, hence, he wasn't competing for the major European uh, tournaments. So perhaps that's the reason. Absolutely right. So four great options for you to pick for, uh, pick from rather on Twitter at 11pod. Our centre-back will be either Ledley King, Paul Warhurst, Miodrag Belodadich or Roberto Ayala. a great chance for Ian Robin and it's a magnificent piece of defending by Ledley King look how much ground he makes up he's 10 yards behind Robin that's brilliant that is brilliant okay bench time and there's just one player really I'd like to mention and that is Mikael Londra who is the French goalkeeper mm, and he played for various clubs Nantes Paris Saint-Germain Lille Bastia 618 appearances and only 11 caps for France. And again, I think this was by virtue of just being uh, behind some quality goalkeepers in the French ranks, obviously Barthez and players of those ilk. So I don't think he got the international recognition his talent deserved. Yeah, that's a good shout. Um, I know the name. Uh, And one more I'd like to mention who narrowly missed out to Yusuf Chippo was Clint Dempsey. 
um, a player who I always really enjoyed watching for Fulham, consistently scored goals, got assists. Um, he was pivotal under some of the best years that Fulham had in the Premier League. So, um, an underrated 11. Um, look forward to hearing your thoughts, but this is what we've come up with on the podcast today. Uh, in goal is Stefano Sorrentino, left-back Ricardo Gardner, centre-back Richard Dunn, and he will be partnered by either King, Bella Dedich, Warhurst or Ayala. And then Alessandro Costa-Curta at right-back, Centre midfield, John Moncur and Stephen McPhail. Ahead of him, Yusuf Chippo. And on the wings, Steed Malbronk and Bernd Schneider. And leading the line is Olivier Giroud. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.